This is Anime Gamers Podcast number 32, recorded on Friday, June 18th, 2010, from Anime Next. Hey, welcome to the Anime Gamers Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Minto, also known as Vemptvo. This episode is a little bit different from what we usually post on the Anime Gamers Podcast because it is a recording of a panel called Fandom and Criticism, the Art of Active Viewing that I ran at Anime Next 2010 with Anime Gamers bloggers Inc. and Uncle Yo. I apologize for the poor sound quality, but obviously I was recording in a panel room full of convention attendees, so there's little I could do to fix that. I, I did what I could. Anyway, uh, if you enjoy this episode and you want to hear more, please uh, check us out at podcast.anigamers.com where you can find previous episodes complete with show notes, comments, and more. I'd really like to know what you guys think of this panel, so if you have any feedback about this episode or any others, just shoot us an email at podcast at anigamers.com. That's about it. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. How are you all doing today? Hello. Good. All right. Uh, I'm Evan Minto. This is Carl Custer, better known as Uncle Yo. Hi, guys. This is Ink. You're going to go by Ink? Sure. It's a pseudonym. We're all from AnnieGamers.com. It's a, I don't even need that mic. Uh, it's an anime, manga, video game blog. We do reviews and news and all kinds of things like that. And we like to critically analyze anime a lot. So what this panel is about is, it's not actually specifically about anime, but it's a panel for, I don't know if anybody here doesn't know what it's called. It's called Fandom and Criticism, the Art of Active Viewing. So we're going to be talking about active viewing, which is watching something without letting yourself kind of fall into the, the thing you're watching and watching it critically and understanding what's going on in it, which is a very useful skill, not just for reviewers, but we believe for anybody who watches or reads or plays anything. So first question is a little bit more general than that. Uh, and the way this is going to work is we're going to, I'm going to ask a question and we're going to go, I guess we'll go Carl, me, and then Ink. And then we'll open up the floor to a couple brief uh, answers from the crowd after that for each question. So, first question How exactly do we define a good anime versus a bad one? And should we even try to define a line between those? Well, we start off right off the bat with probably one of the most uh, difficult questions is the difference between sub subjectivity and objectivity, if I'm pronouncing both those words right. Uh, <laughs> anything, uh, anything subjective is an opinion. I'm fat. Um, anything objective is a fact. I'm fat. Um, <laughs> No, well, well, well uh, ob- objective is giving like weight or measurement or something definite. Subjectivity is this reminds me, this reminds me of. And my problem with anime is I love what's relatively known as terrible series that are just random for the for the joy of being random. And I also love the the classics like the Bebops and Bebops and the Triguns. And I love those five minute epics that no one likes just because no one no one likes them. I love closeted series. And I think you can define uh, a series as whatever speaks to you as something that you enjoy. Like, one of the big things that got anime so huge in America was when the shoujo manga phase hit. And suddenly, <coughs> companies like Tokyo Pop and Barnes & Noble just exploded with all this extra revenue as teenage girls finally found comic series that geared toward what they were feeling, geared toward just a realistic setting. It wasn't just men in capes punching other men in capes. Or women, <laughs> or women in capes. I'm not here to judge. Um, I, I think like a good and bad is is one way of getting yourself caught into a trap. It it closes to discussion. It's one thing to say that Full Metal Alchemist is a statement on politics. It's it's a polit it's a political statement because you have uh, um, a mistress and you ha- and you have um, Ishval. You could say that. You could also say it's a good series because all the characters are well developed. Or you could say it's bad because I hate it and it's stupid and it's dumb and you're fat. <laughs> like that really explains anything. The, the, the key is to just try to, if you're actively viewing, defining something more as what is the goal, what's the message that's trying to be delivered, and is it delivered to the point where the average viewer catches on to it? That's, I, I think that's something that a lot of people can agree on, that like good, good and bad can be really subjective. It can be like, I like this because it spoke to a personal thing that happened to me in my life. But one of the easiest way to define good versus bad almost objectively because you can't really define it objectively is what is it trying to do and does it do it 
And you could say it's bad if it does not succeed in doing that. And that's, I, I think, a combination of those two is the best way to judge something, because something can fail in what it does but still be entertaining, and so it's good in a different kind of way. And that's, I think, the job of a reviewer or any person when they're judging an anime or anything else to figure out if it's good and for which of those reasons is it objectively or subjectively good. And how one goes about defining good and bad for yourself, when you're watching and when you're trying to figure out what is this anime trying to do, is how it's trying to do it. And once you decide what you're looking for, how it accomplishes that. And if it does so believably, competently, then you can call that good, at least focusing on whatever aspect you're looking for. It could fail in other areas, but excel, say, in like character development, but it could fail plot-wise, there could be gaping plot holes. Um, so yeah, so there, there could be multiple good and bad aspects to every anime, but defining it is defining the how it's doing. And next question is, oh, I'm sorry. I'm opening up to you guys. Do you guys have any answers for that? Yeah, so like, what is, has anyone an opinion on what is an openly bad anime? Akikan. Akikan? <laughs> what makes Akikan a bad anime? Uh, poorly animated, poorly written, not funny, but tries to be. It's ugly. It's <laughs> <laughs> feels so like a Chris? Um, as much as I do realize that good and bad are subjective, uh, yeah, subjective, and they are. I don't know if anyone could possibly actually like Cosplay Complex. Cosplay <laughs> Complex. It was a three-episode uh, three ADV put out back in like 2005 when they were licensing everything. And I'm pretty sure Japan solely made it. It's like, oh, people cosplay. They'll love this. And we're talking lackluster animation, cookie-cutter, one-dimensional characters. Zero absence of a story and zero absence. That's like a double negative there. Like absolute zero. Can it be so lacking in a plot that Clonad is jealous? <laughs> you dare say that about my wife, boo. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, it, there was. Right, we gotta, okay, sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so here's the more central question to this panel, and that's what is active viewing and what differentiates <laughs> it from the typical viewing that, that most fans of anything go about? I think when you're actively viewing, um, it should probably be the second or third time you're viewing something. Um, because active viewing, you almost enter in with a mindset, which can in some cases uh, kill the message that, that a director or the writer or the composer, what have you, is trying to get to. Uh, example, very recently for me, I saw Shutter Island, um, it's directed by Scorsese, it's got DiCaprio in it, so I'm thinking Departed all over again. Turns out to be a really great movie that I end up enjoying. Uh, you, guess, you guess the twist pretty well, and it just feels like a genre case, but as I'm watching it, I'm trying to figure out what Scorsese is trying to say about violence or what he's saying about America. The second time viewing, you're just trying to, f uh, I was just piecing together the twist at the end to see how everything fell into place. The third time, you finally pay attention to how he's using the music as um, obstructively as possible uh, to give you the feeling that the viewer is locked onto the island as well and that right and wrong are so subjective. Um, really fun mystery with that. Uh, what is, what is another one that, that goes on with that? But I, I guess the quick, quickest way that I can define active viewing <laughs> oh, with a, with a Michael Moore piece. First off, you watch a Michael Moore movie and you go, rah, 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 Republican, so evil. And then, you watch, <laughs> and then you watch it again, thinking for yourself, questioning where did he get these facts and these juxtaposition, juxtapositionings that he's making. Everything is made with a choice. He had a part in um, Capitalism, A Love Story, where he has Bush giving a speech and in the background, he has what looks like a flash animation of a house just falling apart and catching fire. He's trying to make the juxtaposition that this man was deconstructing and destroying the nation like a natural disaster and just kept on talking and didn't do a thing about that. That's maybe like the second time watching it. Just viewing something is, is trying to put what you're trying to get out of the film as each scene viewing it as a whole. Like as me was trained as, as a, a dramatic storyteller, everything to me is, where's the beginning, where's the twist, where's the end, does it all fit together? Is the ending scene somehow the ultimate change from the first scene? And they do that in a lot of episodes of Cowboy Bebop where the first thing you see will come back right at the end, 
but then you'll see the change in the episode, whether it's a facial expression that tells you Spike has learned something, or whether it's the Ace of Spades comes back, like that was his ace in the hole all along. Um, before I ramble too long, I guess I'll pass it to Evan. Yeah. It's, it's, it's watching for what you want to view it for. Uh, for me, at least, active viewing is almost like an out-of-body experience because it happens on the uh, it happens usually for me on the first or second time watching it and it's that I watch it emotionally at the same time as I'm watching it critically and I'm almost watching myself watching whatever it is so uh, Millennium Actress is a good example of a, a movie that I really really like and and I'll tear up in the ending scene but but every time I watch it I, I get really emotional but at the same time I'm I'm watching what is, the, like, what is it doing to make me emotional? What is going on in the piece that's causing me to have this reaction to it? And I think that's really important because if you detach yourself too much, you end up just being a robot who just watches technical aspects. And it's important to understand how it does something and how effective it is at, at engaging you in whatever it's doing. And uh, I think how we, we bring ourselves to active viewing is, is different for every person because you can watch it like Carl does or, or like I do. And you just have to find a way to to watch, to to think. I, I think a good way to think about it is to imagine the creators of the show and imagine what they were thinking when they made it, rather than just thinking of it as something that's in front of you. Like think about the depth and the things that had to go on before it came in front of you. By the way, Carl is about to totally spoil Tengen Topa Gurren Lagann. So if you have not seen it and you don't want to hear the spoiler, skip ahead about forty seconds. Yeah, like how did they do um, in Gurren Lagann? One of my favorite scenes is end of Kamina for episode eight. Just, just, <laughs> just take because it's such an emotional stir. Everyone is screaming. Colors are the most extreme, but that's what Ganex was going for. Your color, the colors are syncing up with your emotions. The music is building up. The shots are getting closer and closer, and let yourself feel what's going on, and then break apart how they did that. How going from close-up to Simone to close-up of Kamina's wound is, is getting him closer to that. Oh, uh, Kamina lives, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I agree with Uncle Yo. It, it's, uh, should active viewing is something that happens for me, like, second time around. First time, I want to melt into the story. I want to see what happens and what sequence and how... Just, just see it develop. I'm, I'm a big fan of stories, no matter how they come. But there can be a point uh, in the series where I might appreciate something a little more, like it's very prevalent, and I'll latch on to it, and then I'll start to notice it in the series as I watch it. And that's partially active viewing. What I think active viewing really is, is when you're on your second, maybe third run through, and you start questioning like Evan said, why they did certain things certain ways. And you start looking for examples, and if it carries through, and like uh, Uncle you said, with the use of color and Gurun Lagan and music and other series, and it's, it's, that, that's, that's how I define it. Anybody have any answers from the crowd? Yeah, go for it. Nothing wrong with yeah. a little discussion. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I just want to comment like about active viewing. Sure. Um, I'd say like most fans today participate in active viewing a lot because we're a very fandom based kind of culture. So like you get a DVD of a movie and you can listen to it with 18 different kinds of commentary and watch all the deleted scenes. So you can sit there and you're, I mean, for anything and find out like what went on in the thought process behind the making of this movie and what went, and like for anime stuff, we all go on and read, you know, interviews with the director and we go to events we go to cons and meet people and ask questions about them and some directors are more enigmatic about answering but like you so <laughs> we're we're kind of always I'd say most people these days are digging into more active viewing even if they're not consciously aware of it while they're watching like the third time you're watching a movie you're like oh so I know why the director did that because I read an interview on this website about and he's like talking about why he chose the color pink for this character shirt to represent this about the character we're all kind of getting to that point where it's like there's a lot more active viewing going on for everyone even if it's unintentional and doesn't that just make you enjoy it all the more <laughs> well it's you know robert redford actor um mm -hmm. he hates that <laughs> he was um 
he's totally against deleted scenes and interviews and stuff like that. He's like, well, you should go into a show. You should just immerse yourself in it and you should love it. Um, and we're kind of moving way away from that to this point where everyone knows everything before it happens. Like a series is announced six months in advance and by the time it comes out, we've already had like 20 interviews with the director and a lot of the cast and you're trying to dig up every piece of information possible. So it's kind of like, it's interesting from the different perspectives, whether that's, I, know, I like it, so. I want to move on to the next question. Um, so, how does the social and critical context around a work affect the way we view it and analyze it? So, it's like, are we more prone to be harsh on a series if it's been recommended a whole lot? Or are we more prone to be, to like it because either like people really don't like it or our friends told us that it's really good? So, like, how does that affect the way we go in with different expectations? I think my favorite part about uh, finding a new series that I haven't learned a thing about is that isolated island feel of you have no idea what's going into it. Like uh, when I first discovered the six episode series Bastard, Bastard is an epic medieval high fantasy 80s death metal. <laughs> Everything explodes, it's great. The character's name is Darkshiner. All the spell names are like 80s metal bands, Venom, Megadeth. Like that's the that's the sheer joy of it. Um, and then I learned. Then I went to AnimeNews.com and I Anime News Network and learned a little bit more about the stat that went behind it. I think that friends building up expectations, saying, "Well, you're really gonna like it," is their way of saying, "I really liked it," and by my showing you this, you'll like me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. I love introducing people to Cowboy Bebop mm -hmm. because I love it so much and I'm hoping that they will love it as much as I will and then there will be that common thread, common connection. Because you have that in you always have those inside jokes with your friends. No one no one does like Cowboy Bebop. It's that's all right. As soon as someone recommends something to you, then you have your own set of ex expectations based on what you know about them and what they like. Like, you're right, you don't, you, you move away from that, it's a whole new series, because it's not, now you have some input about it, like, it's gonna influence your view whether you know it or not. And then you have that bizarre projecting of, that's exactly why, she's like, my mother has this thing where everything that's horrible, like, the Ben Stiller movie, The Heartbreak Kid, she thinks is hilarious. Yeah, ben Stiller movie. Yeah. Every Ben Stiller movie. Yeah. She, whatever, she, whatever she sees, she thinks is great, and that I will like, when it is, in fact, well, subjective, horrible unwatchable, <laughs> stabbing myself in the head to lose consciousness so I don't have to watch the rest of it. Uh, so, anyway, I also think that, uh, don't watch that break, kid. the context around it can affect how, like, not just the expectations if we think it's going to be good or get bad, but kind of the frame of mind we watch it in. So if somebody tells you, like, this movie's crazy, it's not supposed to be serious, don't take it seriously, you get a whole different experience of watching like some crazy 80s action movie or Gogol 13 in terms of anime, which is, I don't know, kind of obscure nowadays, but that's like an 80s, the crazy 80s action anime. So if you, watch, if you watch that with somebody telling you it's crazy and there's just like a CGI helicopter made of one polygon, like you, you go into that and you watch it and say, yes. like, this is awesome because it's so over the top. But if somebody tells you like, it's a commentary on assassins and, and death and life and espionage, then like, you'll, you'll come out of that like, that was supposed to be serious, but that's not a good movie at all. So I think, I, I also think you guys were touching on something interesting with like your, your expectations from, from other people. And, and I think by, by actively viewing things and by being able to, to tell what, like, what we like about something and why we like it, allows us to, to open our own prejudices towards and against things to other people so they know what to expect when we recommend something to them. So if you know you dislike everything that your friend likes, then you just know to just be the opposite. When they recommend something, you know not to watch it. And if they say something's terrible, you know that you need to watch it. <laughs> exactly. It, it all comes down to knowing who's doing the, recommend, rather, the recommending. Uh, like, I, I didn't watch Naruto, not Naruto at all. And when I went, when the, the cosplay just like exploded, I think it was Otakon I went to, and everyone was in orange. It was a seething sea of orange. And I was like, what the hell is this? And someone told me Naruto. I was like, okay, okay. Went, went home, watched a few episodes, and I was like, 
okay, it's kind of fun. Why is everybody in orange? <laughs> um, and I, I, I just hate masses of people loving on something, so that did affect my viewing. But at the same time, if I have a friend who knows my taste and they'll say, hey, this has this and this and this that you like, I'll go, okay, I'll check it out. And I'll, I'll, I can pretty much be assured that their recommendations are for me and not from them. Like, you know, they point out. Because um, people do want you to love what they love, because sharing anime is about sharing love. Like, you want people to appreciate what you like. Common Ground's a perfect way to wrap up that thought. Does anybody have any quick things to say to this? Um, fully coolio side? I don't think I've known anybody who's understood either the first watcher without having to get explained. But I really love it, and people who understand it tend to love it. To quickly, I mean, to understand fully coolio, imagine you are 13 again. Red is vitality, power, and development, and blue is impotence. So long as you watch with those, with that color code in mind, you have painted this amazing portrait of what it is supposed to be in your head. All right, just so, swing the bat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the next question, uh, this is a bit on the the other side of things. Can questioning the content of of a series or, or a movie or anything? ruin your enjoyment or, or ruin someone else's enjoyment if you're in a room with a bunch of friends? We did this a lot in high school and, and middle school, at least my teachers would. They would give us a book and they would tell you we're going to read it out loud and then we'll discuss what was going on at the time the author was writing it. So Tom Sawyer was butchered to the nth degree to where Tom Sawyer meant pain and hate for me. And then I reread it uh, just just a couple of years later, and it's a, it's just a it's a fun, lighthearted novel. You can read into it as much as you want, but if you're not going to enjoy it or get a nice little sarcastic laugh out of it, then Mark Twain is not for you. And that's just what it comes down to: is everyone saying something is a classic book of literature, something classic piece of literature, maybe for the time, but times move on and times change. And Jane Eyre is not pro-feminist at all. Get over yourself, Bronte. <laughs> I'm waiting for Jane Eyre and like Street Sharks. Like that'll be the next thing that comes out after Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Uh, I think in my case, I've had a lot. Of, <laughs> I've had a lot of uh, instances when when me questioning things has definitely like made other people not really be comfortable with watching it and. Sometimes I think, because you guys say that you watch things emotionally first, and I, I don't often do that. And sometimes I think it is important to, tr to try to do that, or at least to not always, and when you're in a room full of people, to not always be voicing your opinion of something being bad, and just kind of tell everybody after the movie's over, so that they're not, like, you know, going to all hate you for it. But uh, I think for certain things, if, if the questioning is ruining the content for you, like, it can sometimes just be that the content isn't good. And I think it, if we're always, I think a lot of people do sometimes just say, like, I just want to enjoy this because I paid money for it, like Epic Movie, which I saw with people. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, I paid, I paid money to come to see it. this movie. What? You can't unsee it. <laughs> Stay tuned for more tales of bad movies. So, <laughs> So people will sometimes justify liking something and not not look at it critically, and I think that can that can hurt you in the long run. So if you're if you're just sitting there like I, you know, I want to like this movie because I paid money to see it, that I think it helps more to say I don't like this and this is why, and then tell people why because it it promotes people paying money to see good movies instead of paying money to see bad movies and then trying to justify it after the fact. So. I mean, it can ruin. I think if I was like drunk and watching an epic movie, that might have helped. <laughs> but like, but to sit there and say I don't like this helps me to later say I will never watch any movie made by I forget who makes those movies, but those guys. And what's the Spartans one? Yeah, oh my Spartans god! Beat the Spartans. Beat the Spartans. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Friedman or something like that. More like beat the Spartans in. Really <laughs> worth it. Uh, I'm all for holding criticism of a series while you're watching, or a movie, or anything while you're watching it or reading it, or until the end. 
because you, you speak up during a movie and for whoever is watching it with you, automatically brings them right out of the movie or series and right with you and you're missing the continuity of whatever you're watching. And that, that can cause massive disenjoyment for anyone uh, in the room. And I, I just found like, if, if you discuss it with friends afterwards, you can get a good debate going on, why you liked it, what you liked, and nothing's ruined for anyone because they didn't have to like what they were watching, but they went through it without ruining it for those who did. Anybody else? Yeah. You made a good point before about not being overly critical. Like, uh, it, it's, it's like anything else, there has to be a balance. Like, you can't just, like, go see, we saw the A-Team recently. Like, you can't just go to the A-Team and be like, oh, you know, that's one, one and a half stars, like, it was crap. Like, you have to kind of realize that it's an action movie, like, you have to let people get what they're going to get out of it. And you made a good point, like, don't, don't ruin it for people while you're watching it. Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah, you haven't spoken yet, so. I think the whole thing can be a perfect example of that is Evangelion. Because that okay. can be ruined so easily by riffing on it. And it's great to riff on it after someone's already seen the whole thing, but before then, it just ruins it. Yeah, because I think that, has, that, that show does have a lot of like emotional tension that's yeah, held there. And if you just try to make fun of it during that, and you can ruin that entire experience. You can yeah, you're ruining yeah. the effect that Anno, that, uh, Anno is going for, which I think he executes very well. But uh, active viewing is interesting because it's, n if taken the wrong way, it can be like what the Fox News Network does, which is taking your opinion and hitting someone over the head. With the cell phone. <laughs> With the cell phone, <laughs> indeed. No. Sorry about that, team. Um, at the wrong case, um, it, Hitting your hitting your opinion over, over over someone that stops the discussion. The whole point of this panel and for the active in general is to encourage discussion and a clash of opinions and, and a compromise. Active viewing is more a development of your ability to think for yourself and see something from different points of view, as opposed to putting your um, what you're what you're going for your your statement your your motto your view on what you're watching so that you can use it to pull other people into your opinion which is something actually uh, i think it was marx whose main theory was uh you know antithesis versus uh thesis is uh progress so you know you, you everyone gains in the discussion if you think critically but both sides have to enter into it logically and not emotionally driven uh, so next question: What what purpose do you guys think negative commentary and negative reviews serve in in critiquing and in discussion? Do they help or hinder our discussions about types? A negative re negative review is almost at least like super negative reviews because obviously oh yeah ones that ones that simply come on and they're simply an extended like troll rant like a four chan. Like it, like it's a series. It's a series of capital letters and exclamation points that turn into ones. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> obviously not worth Are you it. Uh, Yahtzee in that? Yeah, I could. It take. It takes. I a think he would be a good example of that. Yeah. Yeah. It takes a while to filter through and find reviewers whom you trust. The key is an objective, balanced opinion. Is saying this is what is strong about the piece. This is where it did not appeal to me. It reminded me of X, Y, and Z. If you're a fan of either or any, check it out. Um, I think a good example of this is uh, the blog Colony Drop, which a lot of people don't like it. They like they make fun of tons of anime fans. They really don't like Moe, which is a very popular trend right now. And uh, that was that was not that was not planned off. Which is the popular trend, Moe or hating Moe? Both. <laughs> it's a circle of life. <laughs> so, so Colony Drop gets a lot of hate for being very negative in in some of their articles. But I think, like I, I describe it to people as like, they're that guy in the room who says what everybody's thinking but nobody wants to say. And I think that can be important, even if they get they become this magnet for anime fans hating them. I think it's important to have somebody to kind of like jolt you out of of loving something with this blind love and have you 
because for people who don't question things, if somebody tells you like tells you some opinion that's not backed up, I mean, Colony Drop, they're, they're good writers, but if somebody just goes like, your favorite anime sucks, you're, that prompts you to stop just sitting there being like, oh, I love Clanad, Clanad's so good, and forces you to say like, this is why I like Clanad, and defend your opinion, even though your opinion's wrong. The most, the most, <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the most important, it's one of the most important stories uh, for your critical thinking development is the Emperor's New Clothes. Someone has to point out the fact that the Emperor is not wearing any clothes, no matter what the guards around him with the sharp knives tell you. I, I like overly negative reviews. I, I, um, it goes to something that the, the character Ego the Critic said in Ratatouille. It's fun to write, it's fun to read, um, but at the end of the day, it's just words and opinions, and how they write something can make you follow someone's writing style, won't necessarily make you believe what they're saying, but you can enjoy reading it. So it won't hurt a review, but it can foster readership, and it could also foster differences of opinion, which can be a good thing. Anybody from the crowd? Go ahead. Um, I think overly negative reviews can serve two purposes. One, it can be entertaining to just see someone trash a series hired, but on the other hand, so long as it isn't to the point where it's just, this sucks, and doesn't give any explanation why, it can be overly critical. But even if there's an explanation, an overly negative review that will be totally biased and make someone say, oh, he's just not liking it, if points are still brought up even in this overly critical review, it can still totally make a person think, oh, wait, when next time they watch said series or said movie or something. It's still a way to get your mind out there. And in a good review, that, or a well-written review that will point out both good and bad qualities of a show, a person might say, oh, this is just the reviewer's feeling. If the good qualities are still there, they may not take it as seriously, if you get what I mean, as opposed to something that's just bad. But I guess it also depends on who. It's, yeah, whatever. Anybody else have any other comments before we move on? It's sometimes easier to be negative. Because like if you if you make if you're saying oh this is a problem people be like oh good point but if you're like oh my god I loved it even if you have valid reasons behind it people be like well you know you're too enthusiastic what was really wrong there <laughs> um, so it's sometimes easier to be negative on shows and also like and you can point out negative things in everything even like Miyazaki and like the classics there's it's easy to find something to poke at. Um, and that tends to have like fans kind of knee-jerk defending because it's so much easier to for them to put it down. But not all the fans who defend obviously are, are as well-rounded in their responses. <laughs> so it's a little bit of a give and take. I'd actually respectfully disagree. I'd say it's it's easier to disagree for those who actively view because they're looking for continuity and things to piece together to make the, the film work. Whereas it's easier just to love something if you turn your mind off and say, ooh, pretty colors. Uh, which, you know, the confrontation between the two is what really spawns good discussion. Uh, so next question, how can suspension of disbelief help and hinder critical thinking? Um, suspension of disbelief. Technically, if you're, if you're dealing with a story that has time jumps, something that's not going to be available to you right away, but will come in later down the line, suspension of disbelief lets you hang in there. So it's like, okay, well, I don't get how this has happened yet, but I have faith they will explain. If they don't, it's going to come crashing and burning. And it's and, Wuthering Heights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if, if they do fill in the blanks, and they fill it in, in such a way where you can rewatch the series and plug it in like a mathematical equation with a variable, you know, and suddenly you know the value of x, and it's like, oh yeah, well, it does compute. Um, I, I think that's where suspension of disbelief is a, is a very good thing. Yeah, I think uh, like suspension of disbelief health, belief helps us believe in Dragon Ball Z and say like, oh, it's okay that they're shooting fireballs, because that's the way the world works in Dragon Ball Z. But uh, I, I think it, it's all about consistency, and again, this goes back to a creator doing what they intend to do, because they intend to make you believe this world, and if, I, th I think it, it pulls you out if you have a, uh, if you have 
things that don't work in the world, things that like work on different levels and don't follow the same rules. And that like that will pull you out and make you start questioning everything that that comes up in the series because you'll start to just notice all of these little inconsistencies that don't work. And I think it's interesting there's like a tendency among some fans to to do something called fan wanking. Fanking? <laughs> but it's uh it's the process of saying like there's there's something <laughs> exhibit A. Of course you can't see it, but Ink just wrote fan wanking in giant letters on the whiteboard behind us. There, it's a fan says there's something there's something missing here, but I love this so much, I'm gonna fill it in with my own explanation. And I think that can then you're doing the work for the creators. You're not letting them create this world for you. You're saying, I want this world to, ex to make sense, and so I'm going to fill in the gaps for them. And I think that makes it too, it makes it extremely subjective so that if, if, as a critic, I mean, as just in, if you're just watching, like without being critical, then you can do that. But if you're suggesting something to someone, you can't fill in the gaps yourself because not everybody will be willing to make things up to fill in all of these gaps in the story. I realize now I should have worn my Green Lantern shirt so we all could have dressed alike for this panel. Made, <laughs> us, look, made us look more like a team. No, I don't do Skype anymore. Um, I think without suspension of disbelief, I would not continue to watch Durarara. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> what? But a, a headless horsewoman from, from Ireland makes perfect sense. In, in Japan, yeah. 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 <laughs> or, or Bleach or Hime, you're gonna tell me that a 15-year-old uh, redhead with a double D cup is Japanese? Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Suspension <laughs> 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 disbelief is, is all well and good, but you know, related to your wonderful aphorism of fan wanking, you know, it shouldn't allow you to be an excuse to excuse bad storytelling. Uh, my favorite. Point I like to make of this comes from the late great Isaac Asimov. Have you all heard of John W. Campbell? He was the, the editor of Amazing Stories, which was you know, the biggest science fiction pulp magazine in the 30s. And it was where Asimov didn't publish his first science fiction stories there, but he wanted to, where a lot of the you know, great classic Golden Age sci fi authors got their start. And John W. Campbell, as the editor of that magazine, Asimov told this story, had one cardinal rule, and that is for whatever story you have, you get one line. You know, there is time travel. We have a space war. We have, you know, whatever, some <laughs> nanotech thing. Fine, you get that one thing. But then, keeping that in mind, you know, all the rest of the world, you know, has to be self-consistent. So you don't get to introduce Deus Ex Machina every other page to, you know, couple of stuff. You know, my, one of the ones that, you know, just to pick a random movie out of the hat, where this really irritated me, if it was a really pretty crappy movie, the second mummy movie. <laughs> all right, we have, okay, I will accept we have you know, Egyptian super death magic that which raises mummies. <laughs> fine, I will take that. That, 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 is, that is the lie. Good, fine. In the context of that, be consistent. Then later on, our heroes invent the supersonic rocket balloon that lets them fly around through doing you know X-wing fighter moves in a fucking balloon. <laughs> in Egypt, I was like, no, sorry, fuck you. You're not getting to go and use any bizarro wacko premise. Like, well, we've got mummies, so every bizarro wacko thing about Throne is okay. No, oh, that's fuck off. you. That's bad storytelling. <laughs> what, what it basically is is not following your own set of rules or right. because the. The, the, the Mummy movie is based in, you know, our world, so there's no reason for the rocket ship X-Wing handling balloon. Right. Which is why we don't play Dungeons and Dragons together anymore, Inc. <laughs> <laughs> you will accept my steampunk orcs and gnomes and you will like it. You said I couldn't have plus 30 love. <laughs> my other favorite example of that comes from when I was in college and, uh, supposed to show how old I am, that Star Trek IV came out. Mm -hmm. And we, my, my roommate at the time was the only guy I knew at the time who had a laser disc player, and he got the laser disc for that movie, and all of us gathered in his, his dorm room, and we all watched the movie. One of my friends was a, I enjoyed Star Trek, but I wasn't really a hardcore Trekkie, but I, I was this one friend who was a super hardcore Trekkie. And they're doing the scene where uh, they're talking about, oh, we have to go in there and gather the high-energy photons from the nuclear reactor to, to re-energize the uh, blah, 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 whatever it is, you know. Okay, I'm a physics student, so I'm, I'm laughing at this concept. And the start, start of it is, well, maybe they could be, it could be this. And but I was like, no, what, what they're saying just from the context of realistic physics makes no sense. Yeah. But then later on, when they are flying around on the ship and they, they beam the whales up, 
He got all bent out of shape. He goes, oh, you can't beam the whales that way because they beam whales <laughs> and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Star Trek technology, that was the absolute biblical stone tablet, sacrosanct, whatever. Leave the but whales out of physics, it. physics, it could be this. Realistic physics, we can do fan wanking. <laughs> Uh, mo moving on, since uh, since anime and manga are foreign material, how do those cultural differences and also aspects of translation factor into how we can how we watch things and how we judge them? Uh, a question I I like to ask is: Are we reading good translations of Japanese or translations of good Japanese? Ooh, now that's interesting because uh, there's there is and there isn't a language barrier between uh, the East and the West. Um, when you translate Japanese into English, you have an amazing lexicon of a million plus words. Um, Japan, though it has a word for everything, um, see, feels very limited in what it's able to express, or at least per perhaps, I mean, not being um, literate in Japanese whatsoever, feels like Japanese is limited to I see, I've never felt a power like this before, and no. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I still don't think I know what the word for bathroom is in Japanese, which means I won't go to Japan anytime soon. <laughs> okay, that's the answer. <laughs> uh, so I think... Can I, I throw in an interjection on the, go ahead. On this subject of hijack the commentary? One other element of translation, a third layer which you're looking at, which is also very important, and which I have to deal with for a panel that I'm doing later in this convention, um, it's not just the actual translation of the language itself, you can have people who are astoundingly competent, knowledgeable translators, but sometimes what they're translating also has external historical or cultural baggage with it, which the most competent translator in the world may not know. Perfect example of this from one of my co-panelists from years ago, an early ADV films uh, translation of uh, anime back in the videotape days, called Legend of Lion Flare. And the head of ADB Films asked my co-panelist, oh, what do you think of our translation? Like, hey, you don't want to know. No, no, seriously, we want to know. No, you don't want to know. Like, okay, press, press, finally know. Okay, look, guys, you may have the you know translation of the action dialogue fine, but it's not Legend of Lion, Freya. It's, when they say this word Japanese, Freya, it's Freya, the Norse goddess Freya, you know, goddess of frost and night. It's, a, it's not the Legend of Lion, as in L-I-O-N, it's the Legend of Lyon, as in the castle Lyon, which is where the German hero Siegfried, which by the way it's not Zeke, the main hero of your show, it's Zeke, Siegfried, the great hero of German history, uh, is, you know, was, was resurrected and blah, 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 all this mythology stuff. If you don't know that mythology, you can have a perfectly good translation of the dialogue and get everything staggeringly wrong. And as he said, you know, this isn't because I'm a great super knowledgeable guy on Norse mythology, it's because I read Jack Kirby comics as a kid, you know. Uh, we deal with this, I'm doing a, a panel on Italia tomorrow, and Axis Paris Italia, and, uh, there's a, a particular joke in there which, which sort of set me off on making that panel, which depends entirely on the word choice that you use for this one line that one of the characters speaks. Most of the fan translations that I've seen get it right, but if you, if you there are alternate translations of this word, it's, I know what the original Japanese word, but if you translate it either as wailing, like crying, or bellow, like you're shouting. And there's also and, something and, to be said for, you know, the lip-syncing they have to do to make the animation look yeah. clean. There's boundaries of that. There, there's translation problems in all sorts of printed matter. I mean, whether, you know, you're reading the author's original intent or the translator's. Right, uh, you're going through an extra filter and you're not sure if you're, if you're critiquing that and telling a, a friend that it's good, you don't know if, if they read it in Japanese, if they would enjoy it as much as in English because they might be improving that. That's why part of I'm sorry. Well, yeah. sorry. Uh, that's part of uh, why I always watch anime. I always watch the dub first, and then I'll watch the sub. And if what I heard and what I remembered hearing from the dub matches or closely matches the Japanese, I'll watch the dub because you know obviously I want to concentrate more on visuals and reading as fast is not my strong suit. But if the Japanese just makes way more sense, I'll trust the translators as opposed to the people who are trying to match the third medium of lip syncing. Mm. Yeah, I, I definitely think that the translation is sort of the, the lost art that a lot of people overlook when it comes to critiquing anime and manga. Um, Japanese and English are completely different languages, and they have different styles to them. Um, so if you do a direct translation to English, it doesn't sound natural. It does require some interpretation to actually make the language sound natural. And I think that 
it, if they're unable to do that, then that, that's something you have to criticize against, um, a, a poor translation. Yeah, I've run into some, some problems like that with, uh, I mean, Zeta Gundam is an example of something I really didn't like, and, and like every other Gundam fan I talk to seems to like it, but I, I feel like it might have been a problem in the translation, that it's awkward, and that can just ruin the whole show for you, and then you're... You can't be sure if you're, you know, you're telling someone don't watch Zeta Gundam, but maybe if they watched a better translation of it, they would enjoy it. And it can be, it, it can be really difficult to do that. You kind of have to look further into, you know, if there are different translations, you have to try to watch different ones or learn Japanese. <laughs> you had a question? Um, response. There's sort of an even further layer because most of the foundations I know of for traditional anime came out of imitating Disney cartoons and working out of a American rebuilt Japan. So it's sort of like there was an American cultural influence that entered in and now we're looking at how it's developed out. So it's even looking at a warped American culture through yeah. Japanese eyes. Are they culture? <laughs> <laughs> this question is kinda of ongoing on what I want to say. With anime at least there's a better shot with because you can watch it in Japanese and hopefully the translation you can at least hopefully assume it's better than the translation used in the dub uh, context for readjusting and all that but also talking about reading direct translations with manga unless you can read kanji we can't have that second option we can't go view the dub and the sub most of us unless you know both languages with manga we're kind of stuck with the translator's uh, interpretation of the manga and you just kind of have to put that aside to kind of you gotta have to put that put that aside and hope that the translator translated and that it's something I, I try not to think about when actively reading manga um, but sometimes it's there I mean looking at old Tokyo pop and ADD manga releases there's just embarrassing phrasing like embarrassing phrases and just bad editing and all that sort of stuff well, subtitling is not just like that that's not the direct oh i know i know i know there's I, still interpretation there. i i i've studied japanese for six years i understand <laughs> that but yeah i was gonna say that i would equate manga translation with subtitling and yeah that's dubbing is something is another stage that manga doesn't have to go through mm -hmm. um so i would say you know the, the purest you can get without speaking japanese people is you know if you're arguing that subtitles then manga then we're getting the purest you can get i mean Understanding that obviously some translations weren't great and Tokyo Pop had a whole new policy that, you know, didn't produce the same quality at the beginning um, or sometimes now, but it's, that's just something different. Like you're still getting closest because they're, the only limits on the translators for manga is shoving the words into the word balloon. So they don't have the limits of dubbing or anything. But at least with anime we're able to get kind of two filters on it and see which makes more sense, whereas manga we don't. Mm. Which I don't actually know if we if we have to be out of here ten minutes beforehand or not. So Has I, anyone yelled at we'll you? No. <laughs> Nobody's yelled at me. Somebody looked in at me. Everyone everyone wants to hear ten more minutes of this though. Right? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I like, All right. Sure. <laughs> this first panel of the con. This is interesting. I think you think we can just go to straight to questions and discussions. You guys have enough and. Anybody else still want to say anything? I know you do. Oh. <laughs> okay, thing go I, ahead. I never liked uh, is that I don't see as much anymore. But five, six years ago, any time where uh, Japanese characters were from South Japan, they instantly equated that person with a southern accent here. <laughs> like Osaka, Osaka, Lapita, and I'm like, am I on the ranch? I thought they were from South Japan. I didn't know they had uh, cattle ranches down there. Wasn't Viz dub out of Texas? Media Blasters, CPM in New York, Bondi and Well no, it's, it's I've I've heard of Sokken accents done with New York and I think um Abashi was the first one to do Texas and that works really well. It's you either get an accent or it's just all straight. In the Japanese there's there there's a difference in accents, so what do you do here? Yeah. That makes sense that you would have a sort of funky accent for Osaka. you got to give it some sort of accent. I mean, yeah. another big example of it, that type of accent is Lapina, the dub right. for Katsune. We're going to try to move on to yeah. one more question until we get kicked out. Uh, wait, I, don't know, I think there's not even anything after us, so we might not get kicked out. Uh, so we'll just 
talk until you guys leave. Uh, <laughs> a, uh, so, a big hurdle for, for young anime critics and people who are trying to become critics are uh, six. <laughs> Apparently everyone already uh, yeah. checked out. Uh, anyway, a big hurdle for uh, for young anime critics and people who are trying to become anime critics is uh, like the dated visuals of old shows. And I th I think like how do you, how do you think we need to uh, I'm I screwed that up. I have it written down, but I'm trying to rephrase it. Uh, like what is the best way we can we can kind of break people of that. Uh, and not, not like forcibly, but convince people or, or have, allow them to convince themselves to be able to watch older anime and accept the the dated visuals and the dated storytelling styles as something that's still acceptable. New. I, I'll get to your question after. Right. Duct tape. <laughs> Put them in a chair. You wrap it around a few times. You go. Okay, listen. I'm not gonna hold your eyelids, but you're not gonna want to blink anyway, because it's a really good story. Just remember, you're 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 watching the story. You're not necessarily watching the animation. You can go to black and white films; they're just as good as today's color, or animated, or CG. You know, it, you're watching for the story. So as long as you can get someone to get past that initial shock of whoa, this looks like it was you know drawn by colored pencils and masses of underpaid Asian people. Um, <laughs> as long as you can get past that, you know, still how they animate. Massive underpaid Asian. Oh, this is true. <laughs> well, see, there's your bridge. <laughs> <laughs> that is only slightly less underpaid than before. <laughs> yeah. But, but like, I, I just recently went back. I started watching anime like when I was like six years old. Saturday mornings, uh, Battleship uh, Battleship Yamoto. Um, I, I loved it as a kid. I totally forgot about it until I just recently. Uh, Netflix was streaming a couple of movies, so I went back and watched a couple of the movies and. I, I, the, the, the visuals really, if I would have just started watching anime, I was like, wow, no. <laughs> but having watched some of the newer stuff and realizing I had watched it before, I was like, oh, okay, it's just the black and white movie version. I'm going to get a quick answer in before we go to, to audience answers. Uh, I think I, there are a number of ways you can do this if you're trying to convince a younger fan to watch older stuff. So you can. Say Gurren Lagann's a good example, right? Because it's like an homage to old '70s robot shows. So you can ask them what they like about something, which is again where the active viewing comes in. If they're paying attention to what they like about it, you can you can kind of pick out what they like, and then find older things that share certain aspects. So you can find a robot show that's similar to Gurren Lagann and try to get somebody to watch that. Uh, and I think other ways are like you could do reverse timelines and go backwards. I've done that with my high school anime club. Like start with, or or you could do a, a forward timeline. I think I started with Macross and then just moved forward with all. Um, I just blanked out his name, but the the mech designer and, and creator of that Kawamori, Shoji Kawamori, uh, and kind of just went in a forward timeline until you get to Eureka Seven, which is also new. So it's kind of. You can you can ease people into it that way, and, and then they realize that Macross and Eureka Seven are related, and there's actually a reason for them to watch Macross. So uh, you guys also have some answers. So I was going to say this isn't just a problem with anime; it's a problem with True. American animation as well. Like I can't watch old Scooby Doo shows anymore because the animation. I can't. I like. I can't do the animation anymore. What's um, repeating backgrounds? Even the just like, <laughs> also the hallway with doors on each side. But like, um, and, and ghost it's, being a ghost. it's also a problem with comic books and manga. Like comic books, a little bit more so because you watch, you read the old stuff, and you're like, the color is terrible. But old mangas a very different aesthetic. It's much skinnier, it's much lengthier, which is more, you know, shoujo today, and, and like, it, there's just, it, it's very different styles. And I found that, much as I try to encourage my friends to do this and watch black and white movies and stuff like that, I'll, some people just won't, you know, like, just absolutely can't. I try, like, to ease it in, work my way backwards, um, use good stories, but some people look at it, they, they just can't get past the visual to get to the story underneath. Yeah, I think there are ways to like to ease them in, and once they can get past the visuals, then they can get it, but you you, you can't just try. throw them in there. You're like, you know, Sandman, Neil Gaiman's Sandman. So like, it, so it's Gaiman, so like you, people are like, oh my god, I'll read that, but the art is the 
colors and everything are so dated when you read them today. It's very hard to get into the first time. And so old anime works like that also. You're watching it and you're like, it, it's painful and they're, nothing's moving but the lips. And then not even that. Then they'll show you someone who's not talking so they can have the person talking in the background and not have to animate anything. It's just like, it's when you're doing something new, it's sometimes oh, just too uh, the, the guy in the green shirt. Yeah, have you seen Hellsing? Like the first, like the first. The TV series. I mean, like the first episode was awesome, and then sooner or later it got to a point where they would start hiding characters' mouths with like forks. <laughs> <laughs> the guy in the green shirt had a question in the back. Oh, so I was going to go ahead and you know, reverse it or, you know, pick the best thing in a certain year. Like, mm. you know, don't you don't have to see everything. There's no reason to ever see everything. But show the best of, you know, 1984 or whatever, and, you know, you know, this is what they can do with anime. Like yeah. Uh, I find this uh, happens a lot with uh, people who play video games. You'll play God of War 3, the visually stunning, and you'll try to show like a whole kind of time, like not even 12 years ago. I'm like, this is disgusting. Or even further back, they like, say that. Well, <laughs> but then you'll get people who like try to play uh, like Final Fantasy 1, like, this is, how can you play this? Where's the 3D graphics? Where's the stuff? I, I think Final Fantasy like 7 is like the worst of that, where it's not like sprites. But it's, it's trying like to be 3D. Very blocky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, digitally remastered versions. True. I didn't have cable until freshman year of high school. So, like, when you and the rest of all, well, when you yourself and the rest of our friends were crazy about Dragon Ball Z and everything on Toonami, I had none of that. Right. So, if I did cable, we're like, hey, you should watch Dragon Ball now. By the time I was 15, 16 and seen other anime, I didn't want to watch Dragon Ball because it looked cheap. The animations were just squiggly lines and, well, you know what I mean. It's, it was really hard for me to get into, but now there's Dragon Ball Kai, which while, you know, the cells themselves aren't changed very much, it looks nicer. It's, it's and it is, and it's going to be on Nickelodeon, so I will watch that. I mean, Philly. Well, I think an interesting thing about animation in general is sure you're going to see differences in 70s animated, 80s animated, early 90s animated, but then at some point a big change happened. They started cells were colored in digitally, and it oh, gave yeah, an yeah. entirely different outlook. So, where something in 2010 may not be as fluid as something in 2000, but at least there's still that sort of similar aesthetic, where I say, and you know, of course, there are going to be a few exceptions to things like Bebop and such, but it's yeah. a completely different. It's not just like smaller changes like it would be from the seventies and eighties. But you take an anime from two thousand and then an anime from two thousand and eight, and it'll look so completely different because whatever the exact year was, I don't remember or know offhand. But that advent, I think, changed anime as a whole because all anime is now painted digitally. It has a distinct, clear-cut coloring as opposed to the more yeah. pencil-y looking stuff, which gives it a big difference. I think there are certain cell animated things, though, that are so good they look almost yeah. actually animated, and you can use that to ease someone mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. I'm not 100% sure about it, but I think Porco Rosso was cell animated, and that looks digital, and that and you can use that and other Miyazaki movies and trace that back, because Miyazaki's a really good touchstone for people. Yeah. Like every. Almost well, some Miyazaki I did use software in a few of his movies. He only started doing a little CG with, um, what was it, Princess Mononoke? Mononoke, yeah. yeah some of Mononoke and Spirited Away. Right, so you can use that stuff and go backwards, and then if you get someone to watch Nausicaa and enjoy that, I mean, from there you can branch out to lots yeah, of other exactly. 80s anime, because it looks, I mean, it looks particularly good, but it looks like a lot of other right. 80s anime, and you can kind of branch out. And, and from Nausicaa's Totoro, there's a big difference. Anybody else? I'm not sure how related it is to the panel, but uh, uh, did anybody else have like with Ghost in the Shell uh, standalone conflict season one? I mean, they start, I, I I I liked it for the majority of the run, but as it started going near the end, I started having real major problems with it. That, that you know, I started that I wasn't you know had that I started having low expectations for the second season. You know, like, I mean, it was like the first, like, the second episode was absolutely awesome. You know, I really loved that. And most, and, uh, and, I mean, the quality of, like, of the show itself probably didn't go down, but the storytelling just started getting more, like, nonsensical, you know, and un more unbelievable. Like, when you, when you first, uh, I, I wish, I hope, I'm not spoiling everybody here, but, like, when the, you, uh, 
I think this is all oh, falling apart. Oh, it's four o'clock. Oh, the panel's oh, over. Everybody, thank you for coming. Our blog is www.anigamers.com. A N I Gamers.com. We do lots of cool reviews and things, so please check it out. And we're free to talk after the panel if you're still interested. I'm interested. Stands, thanks us for the meal, and leaves without another word. The following day, his review appears. In many ways, the work of a critic is easy. We risk very little, yet enjoy a position over those who offer up their work and themselves to our judgment. We thrive on negative criticism, which is fun to write and to read. But the bitter truth we critics must face is that in the grand scheme of things, the average piece of junk is probably more meaningful than our criticism designating itself. But there are times when a critic truly risks something, and that is in the discovery and defense of the new. The world is often unkind to new talent, new creations. The new needs friends. Last night I experienced something new, an extraordinary meal from a singularly unexpected source. To say that both the meal and its maker have challenged my preconceptions about fine cooking is a gross understatement. They have rocked me to my core. In the past, I have made no secret of my disdain for Chef Gusto's famous motto, Anyone can cook, but I realize only now do I truly understand what he meant. Not everyone can become a great artist, but a great artist can come from anywhere. It is difficult to imagine more humble origins than those of the genius now cooking at Gusto's, who is, in this critic's opinion, Nothing less than the finest chef in France.